Hello everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and I want to take you through a very short four-part series on missing the mark and hitting it. We'll start with missing the mark and right at the end of the series we'll get to hitting it. This means talking about what is arguably a subject no one wants to talk about, namely the theological concept of sin. These days, sin is something joked about or treated somewhat ironically in Western culture. It's a word more commonly used to refer to eating too much chocolate or ice cream or committing some kind of social blunder. It's common for people to take the word to just be referring to uh, some sort of enjoyable naughtiness. People usually talk about sin with a bit of a smirk and will happily be dismissive of any idiot like me who thinks that such an old-fashioned idea would have any relevance to life today. But just because we've arbitrarily arrived at this moment in history owing to the passage of time doesn't mean human nature has changed. It doesn't mean that we don't need help to make sense of our lives, especially when there's this thing in us that crops up every now and then and wrecks everything. Here's something that I'm pretty sure most of us can relate to. Most of us want to live good or at least decent lives. This is part of the hope of any New Year's resolution you've ever made, to improve but often against our own wishes. We fall short in this regard. We fail to follow through on our resolutions and our various other aims are quickly subverted. We want good relationships, for instance, and to be good in relationships, but we get careless and say stupid and hurtful things, often accidentally. We find ourselves insensitive even when we intend to be sensitive. We want to do our jobs well as well, but when we apply ourselves, we find self-sabotage lurking in the shadows waiting to pounce. And, and self-sabotage lurks in a million other places too. In our attempts to stay healthy, for instance. In our desires to be good examples for our children. In our attempts to have more of whatever we're good at and less of whatever we suck at, etc., etc. We fall short of the glory, as Lenny Kravitz says. Well, he's quoting the New Testament writer and once upon a time Christian killer, the Apostle Paul. This is sadly familiar territory. We have ideals for ourselves, and society also sets up ideals for us too. Not all of those are necessarily good, but there are ideals everywhere. And the fact is, we don't match up to those ideals quite a lot of the time. This is not always because the ideals are unrealistic, by the way. I think the tragedy is that even when the ideals are realistic, we find ways to mess things up. I've been thinking quite a lot about ethics lately because of a new book I've started working on. The book is going to take quite a while, as books tend to, so both you and I need to be patient as we wait for it to find its way onto the world stage. But from time to time along the way, I will share some of my discoveries with you. And some of my discoveries have been around this subject of sin. It's way more philosophically interesting than I had once thought. It turns out most philosophers ignore the concept of sin entirely. The philosopher Nikolai Hartmann, for instance, goes so far as to say that philosophy doesn't have any space for that concept. And while Hartmann cannot exactly be called a moron, he was quite brilliant, I think he was naive in saying this. He ignored something quite horrifyingly applicable to the human condition, although in the process he at least acknowledged that he was ignoring it. 
When you think of the phenomenology of sin, the philosophical view that allows us to delve into the lived experience of this very strange, terrible thing, very quickly what shows itself is a clash between expectation and reality, and a war within ourselves between what we hope to be and what we actually are. Maybe it's a bit like this. There you are, following a recipe, so to speak, and you're doing everything exactly as it has been described in the recipe, making sure the stovetop is the right temperature and that the ingredients are cut all right and that you add them at the right time. You're well on your way to becoming your very own master chef, and then, right before your eyes, something goes haywire. On the passive side, you watch. It's as if you're watching as you veer away from the recipe, almost against your will. On the active front, because I think there is an active dimension too, you want this recipe for disaster and you find yourself divided. You go against your own wishes because you actually want to go against your own wishes. What's up with this? The meal you're making is likely to end up poisoning everyone, including you. Now, psychoanalysis would say the repressed has returned or that the unconscious has usurped the conscious and maybe there is some truth to this. But the actual experience of it is not accounted for by this psychoanalytic idea. In fact, psychoanalysis, as, as Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher, points out, is often an anti-phenomenology. There is something in it that in a way gets away from our human experience. And I think uh, that's maybe one of the, the flaws in it. The experience, the actual experience is this. Even when you do everything right, not everything goes right. Even when you want what is good, something in you also doesn't want what is good. To quote the Japanese swordsman Miyamoto Musashi, everything can collapse. Houses, bodies and enemies collapse when their rhythm becomes deranged. Isn't that a great line, their rhythm becomes deranged. But what is this thing in us that allows the rhythms of our lives to become deranged? I think that understanding this, understanding the concept of sin can help to clarify what it means to live a coherent and thus meaningful existence, an existence that is joyful and fulfilling. In fact, I really hope you will see that through the series, the idea of sin is not reserved only for Pharisees and Puritans. It's something that has tremendous practical relevance to all of us. The first time I thought about sin, what it actually is, um, was when I was about 13 years old. And most of the rest of this first episode in this mini-series involves exploring what 13-year-old me thought and how it can be improved upon by 38-year-old me. Long before reaching 13, I had come to the somewhat tautological conclusion that sin was doing what we were told not to do. No philosophical brownie points for me on that one. But while learning the Ten Commandments off by heart at Sunday school, and that's why I remember how old I was, I started thinking about what sin actually meant. I was looking for a pattern to the commandments, and I figured two things out. This is not exactly terrible philosophizing for a 13-year-old, but it's not complete either. The first thing I figured out was that what unified the Ten Commandments was the idea that sin could be thought of as good in the wrong place. In each of the commandments, something good is named, but that good is displaced. It's in the wrong place. So words are good, for instance, but in the wrong place, they become lies. 
Sex is good, but in the wrong place it becomes adultery. And stealing and coveting are bad because someone else's things, which are good things, need to be in their right place. That is, not in your possession. I regarded death as not particularly evil in itself, um, which I, I understand now is not exactly how the Christian tradition sees it, but that allowed 13-year-old me to conclude that murder was death in the wrong place, and the, in the wrong hands, clearly. I looked at what was wrong, and I saw that I could not comprehend it apart from some prior good. The second thing 13-year-old me figured out by reflecting on the idea of sin in general linked with my pondering the Ten Commandments, was that sin was not just an issue of placement, but also of size or proportion. So, for example, it's good to eat, but to eat too much or too little, well, that's a problem. Pride is too much self. Fear is too much of the enemy. Sloth is too much rest or too much busybody, and so on. So I was very Aristotelian as a 13-year-old, it seems. Already then, I was beginning to see that Whatever sin was, it was not exactly the opposite of good, at least not sort of clearly the opposite of good. Rather, it was a distortion of it. This is a vital idea here. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, St. Paul talks about sin as that thing that misuses the good, this thing inside us that bends the good out of shape. The good thing isn't the problem. It's what we do with it, that is. In hindsight, I can at least say, that my provisional understanding of what sin is was a fair place to start because it suggested the ontological priority of goodness and peace over violence, which is just a fancy way of confirming that when God saw the universe he'd created, he called it good because it was and it remains good. The third thing 13-year-old me knew at that age regarded the word harmatia that is used in the New Testament. The Greek word harmatia was a term used in ancient Greece for all kinds of things. In Homer, a soldier who misses his target when hurling a spear has, so to speak, sinned. Poor guy, he has missed the mark. Aristotle uses homartia to refer to things like diagnostic errors made by a doctor, pretty common in those days, since medicine involved even more guesswork back then than it does now. And Aristotle also used homartia to refer to syntactical errors of a writer. They had sinned by getting their syntax wrong. But yes, even Aristotle used that word to refer to moral failure. To go further than my very early adolescent philosophizing could take me or us, because it misses the mark, although not entirely, it helps to note that missing the mark isn't just about getting the action itself wrong. If you were a novice archer and you accidentally hit the bullseye through no real skill of your own, you would still be, in effect, missing the mark. If you are good by accident, you are by no means a moral paragon. This may seem harsh, but there's a reasonable principle here, and I think it is not just reasonable but very illuminating. In its original technical context, Hamatia is about failing to live in accordance with the norms of archery. Those norms would refer to all the parameters that would guide your actions towards the desired goal. What matters is the total meaning present in everything lived out towards a given aim. Yes, the aim is to hit the mark, to get the arrow to strike the bull's eye, but this aim must be achieved by means of the total situation as well as the posture of the archer working 
in harmony with the situation. The ultimate mark, the meta aim, if you like, is to be the kind of person who hits the target every time. This gets us back to the idea of sin being goodness in the wrong place, but with a very helpful qualifier. Sometimes we're so adamant that we hit the target that we don't worry so much about everything around the action that will make hitting the target possible. This is not the idea you get of sin when you spend any time with moralists and Puritans. For them, the whole point is that single foot put wrong or that particular law that is being violated. Moral Puritans proliferate laws like flies around a corpse, and I, I, some of the worst moral Puritans I've encountered are not actually religious folks. There are micro-rules for everything, words you can and cannot say, deeds approved of or not. The irony here is that this is a sign of sin as much as a total disregard for any moral laws. In fact, it may be a worse form of sin because it wears the mask of virtue. And it's maybe for this reason that Jesus spent most of his energy criticizing Pharisees. It's easy to fall into the trap of sin when we've decided to take virtue out of context and nitpick at the act of wrongdoing rather than genuinely caring for the one who is doing something wrong. Again, what matters in this archery metaphor is not just hitting the target, but everything in the total situation, especially the archer. It's about using the right technique, standing correctly, having the right equipment, taking note of the way that the wind is blowing, the distance between you and the target, making sure you haven't had too much caffeine or too much wine or too little sleep. The total situation and way of being in relation to it are what counts. And the most important part of this total situation is the one mediating it, the one standing over there with that bow and arrow who is aiming at that proverbial target. I'm sure you can see why this gets tricky. Life is easily like balancing spinning plates, to use another metaphor. Balancing one is not exactly easy, but it's also not outright impossible. Balancing two, well, that's much more difficult. Balancing more than two, well, you basically need to be a miracle worker. And in the realm of living the good life, none of us are miracle workers, which is why we find ourselves from time to time walking on an awful lot of broken glass. Our failures cut our own feet as much as they cut the feet of others. In the realm of ethics, there is no such thing as a value that can be isolated. Try to isolate the truth and you end up with a lie. Try to isolate a good thing like sex from relationship and you end up not only with the absence of relationship, but the denigration of even the possibility of a relationship. Try to isolate the value of ownership from the value of generosity and you end up with greedy capitalism and or totalitarian communism. Goodness in context creates more goodness. Goodness out of context destroys even the original goodness taken up. The damage is done when we allow virtues to wander all over the world isolated and alone. To put it briefly, the good is about the order of the total reality and our relationship with it. Sin is chaos and disorder, which emerges from within us and within the order of reality. Quite paradoxically, sometimes we actively want to do what we do not want to do. We are, in the process, divided selves, selves against ourselves. I think the way Francis Spufford talks about sin in his uh, lucid and brilliant book Unapologetic is just right. 
This is what Spufford says. What I and most other believers understand by the word sin has got very little to do with yummy transgression. For us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to muck up. Actually, as an aside, I should say that Spufford uses a word that rhymes with muck. You can use your own imagination to fill in the gaps. Or let's add one more word. The human propensity to muck things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It is our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. I think this is a spot-on description of the phenomenology of sin. Our intentions may be very good, but something in us seizes hold of even the good stuff and applies a wrecking ball to it. We want to build. Something in us, however, wants to destroy or at the very least ends up being destructive. I think this is something implied by the idea that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't intend the good, but that there is something in us that usurps even the good that we intend. There is something in us that disintegrates what we want to be integrated. It tears the world up and ourselves up into a million little pieces, into little fragments and discontinuities, and creates a disorder that works against the total given order of the good. All of this, then, is the first characteristic of sin, which is better put in Augustinian language. Sin is disordered love. It is love that places good things in the wrong order. There are subtle ways in which our loves become imbalanced and chaotic, without us even having a clue as to what to do about it. If I look at a lot of current political ideology, for instance, I notice a lot of good, Compassion towards the other, say, towards the disenfranchised or marginalized. But this gets hijacked to be another excuse for some of the worst forms of egotism and scapegoating you'll ever see. Oppression is seen everywhere, even when it isn't everywhere. So something very good, noticing that, you know, say, some people are being treated poorly, well, that gets usurped and sees maltreatment even where it doesn't exist scapegoating becomes the norm as a result of this. And scary as it is, we need to notice that some of the most tyrannical forms of narcissism and hatred emerge from noble aims. I can see the original good in this, and I think it's really important to look for and locate the good, even when things are going horribly wrong. But I think it's also equally important to notice that the fruit can still be, and often is, completely rotten. So, there you have it. The universe is filled to brim and overflowing with good things. I think that's something we should never forget. But we don't know the order. Or even when we do know the order, we sabotage it. We have this alarming propensity to muck things up. We are at the mercy of it, and yet we are also its active agents. I know that you see this in your own life too. You see the goodwill and the destruction you are capable of unleashing on the world and yourselves. But as much as it is difficult to acknowledge this, the problem is not merely psychological. It seems more accurate to say that the problem is primarily spiritual, although it is going to take 
a little bit of time for me to explain what that might mean. So in the next episode, I want to look at the second characteristic of this human propensity to severely muck things up, which is that sin is anti-nature. And in the process, I'll provide something of an answer to how this thing called sin could even exist at all. In exploring this, I will also offer some thoughts on why this subject is grabbing me right now. Until then, take care everyone.